We know, of course, that fossil fuels are the biggest cause of climate change. They're 90% of CO2 emissions um, come from fossil fuel burning. And then here we are in a country that um, yeah, is planning to expand uh, oil and gas production, where the COP president, so the man kind of leading the negotiations, himself is the CEO of the National Oil and Gas Company. Hello and welcome to Reactive's Beyond the Byland podcast. I am Evie Kiawari, and in this episode, we look into the intricacies of COP28 currently taking place in Dubai. What can we expect from the negotiations? How does the world perceive the hosting of COP28 in Dubai? And what worries climate analysts and climate activists the most? Leaders from around the world are meeting in the United Arab Emirates from November 30th to November 12th to negotiate and agree on policies to tackle climate change during the 28th Conference of the Parties. But what exactly is expected to be discussed and negotiated during this year's COP? COP28, as you know, is the 28th session of the UN climate negotiations, which began in 1995 with COP1. Uh, so this is uh, this is the forum for the global community to come together to take uh, action and decisions on uh, the preeminent challenge of the century, uh, which is of course, climate change. Priti Bandari is Senior Advisor for Climate and Finance at the World Resources Institute. At COP27, uh, there were some important decisions that were taken which have actually set us up uh, for negotiations at COP28. And to my mind, uh, the most um, historic outcome of COP27 related to funding arrangements and a fund for uh, loss and damage uh, due to climate impacts. But there were other important uh, decisions also which set the wheels into motion for the first ever global stock take, uh, which will be uh, taking place at COP28. Uh, it also set the wheels in motion for a global goal on adaptation, defining it, a framework for it. And most importantly, the glue uh, to all climate action, uh, which is about climate finance. Uh, not only taking account of the commitments that have been made on climate finance by developed countries in the past, but also uh, the discussions and conversations related to a new climate finance goal, uh, which hopefully will be agreed at COP29. So basically, the COP27 Egypt in Egypt uh, has set the frame for negotiations at COP28. One of the key outcomes from this COP uh, was on operationalizing uh, the funding arrangements for loss and damage and the fund itself. Uh, and um, much to everyone's delight, uh, the decision was taken on the very first day of the opening of the COP, uh, a, a remarkable achievement, I would say, uh, thanks to the work that was done by a transitional committee that was established to make recommendations to that effect. So, so one of the benchmarks uh, ha- was met on the first day itself. Uh, but um, uh, importantly, there are other very, very key decisions that need to be taken uh, at COP28. Uh, you know, the foremost is the first uh, global stock take of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it is not only a backward look at uh, you know what has happened, where the gaps are, but more importantly, 
in the remaining years of this critical decade on climate action? What is the blueprint for increasing ambition uh, across the board on reducing emissions, on enhancing adaptation and resilience and addressing loss and damage, uh, but also finance. So global stock take uh, and the, the decision related to it would be very critical in ensuring that all countries who have signed up to the Paris Agreement enhance their ambition in the next round of their climate uh, uh, policies and actions or pledges, uh, the so-called nationally determined contributions. COP28 is hosted in Dubai, one of the Gulf countries with the highest oil production, a fossil fuel, raising many questions regarding the outcome of the talks. So what can we expect from this week's of negotiations on this matter? It's a really interesting uh, location, as, you, as you've mentioned. We're here trying to fight climate change. Um, and we know, of course, that fossil fuels are the biggest cause of climate change. They're 90% of CO2 emissions um, come from fossil fuel burning. And then here we are in a country that... Um, yet yeah, is planning to expand uh, oil and gas production where the COP president, so the man kind of leading the negotiations himself, is the CEO of the National Oil and Gas Company. Claire Fison, who is following the negotiations in Dubai, is a climate policy analyst at Climate Analytics, an international science and policy institute. So I think there's strong expectations that we need to come out of this COP with having an agreement to a phase out of fossil fuels. It's so clear from the science now that that's what's necessary. And we've gone years without mentioning this buzzword, fossil fuels, in these negotiations because there are so many vested interests involved. But this year, what we're doing is where governments are coming together to take stock of their efforts under the Paris Agreement. So they agreed back in 2015 to limit warming to 1.5, among a number of other goals related to climate finance, adaptation, and loss and damage. And here, um, well, as part of that, they agreed that they'd come together every five years and take a look at what they're doing. So this is called the global stock take. And that's being finalized here in COP28 in Dubai. Uh, and so we really want governments to, to lay out how they're going to bring us on track. It's very clear that we're far off track from where we need to be. We need to be roughly halving emissions by 2030, and we're nowhere near that. Emissions are still on the rise. Uh, and so we need governments to come away with really concrete actions for how they're going to close that gap. And as part of that, um, there have been calls for a goal to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030. That would get us a, a long way uh, towards closing that gap. And there's a lot of really exciting momentum in the growth of renewables that show that this is indeed possible. Um, there are also calls to double energy efficiency rates um, by 2030. That's a really important part of um, cutting emissions too. But then critically, we also need um, to agree to a fossil fuel phase out. Um, so that's one of the really key outcomes that we're hoping for here. The president of COP28, Sultan Al-Jaber, has claimed that there is no science indicating that a phase-out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees, causing a global uproar with Al-Jaber having to correct his statement afterwards. And let me just clarify where I stand on the science. I hope this time it gets picked up. I honestly think that there is some confusion out there and misrepresentation and misinterpretation. I'm an engineer by background. It's the science and my respect to the science and my passion about the science and it's about my conviction to the science that have enabled me to progress in my career. I have said over and over that the phase down 
and the phase out of fossil fuel is inevitable. In fact, it is essential. This shocked a lot of people. It shocked a lot of scientists. <laughs> and I think this was, a, this was a big error on his part, really. Um, the, the science is very clear that fossil fuels are the leading cause of climate change and that there are routes to um, phase them out. Uh, there are attempts to get language into the final agreement here that would water down a fossil fuel phase out. So to add in language around the use of carbon capture and storage and prolong the, the role of fossil fuels into the future. And there's um, very clear evidence that, that that's a very risky strategy. It's a costly strategy. And it's one that doesn't address um, you know, the impacts of fossil fuel production itself, which causes major health risks for the people living near fossil fuel production sites and it, it causes emissions that are very difficult to reduce. So there's, there's a lot of you know, very good evidence for why it's so important that we rapidly ramp down fossil fuel production on the way to a phase out. He did later come out and sort of correct himself and, and reaffirm the importance of the science and let's hope that that was just a, that was just a, a mistake. Another criticism of this COP has been the unprecedented large participation of fossil fuel lobbyists, alarming scientists, NGOs and climate activists who are worrying about greenwashing. This is a fine line between inclusion and lobbying insofar as we need all hands on deck. On climate action, the case for inclusion is self-evident, uh, but you know there are always uh, lobbies uh, also uh, entering that space and how they function and how they detract uh, from from the work at hand is is worrisome and that is why those fears have been clearly articulated about uh, who is participating and what they are doing are they really furthering the cause Uh, for action on climate change or are they detracting from it? The role of uh, civil society organizations becomes uh, eminent in pointing out, uh, you know, some of these uh, unwanted influences in the conversations. And I think they're doing a good job in doing uh, that uh, watchdog role, uh, so to say. There are over 2,000 people connected to the fossil fuel industry here at COP28. That's a large uptick from previous years. Um, there's, I mean, there's more people in general at this COP. I think it's the biggest COP ever. So, so that's part of the story. But yeah, I think it is, it is worrying to see such a large presence of the fossil fuel industry. It has a history of, uh, of course, lobbying governments, of kind of hiding the science even. We know that companies like Exxon knew about climate change decades ago and covered it up. I think if, if these companies were here and they were really ready to transition, if they were showing that they're taking this problem seriously, then I think that would be positive. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing actually, um, when you look at the plans that fossil fuel companies have in place, they're, they're set to um, lead to more than double the amount of fossil fuel production in 2030 than what we'd need in a 1.5 compatible pathway. So clearly going um, in the wrong direction. Um, and there have been commitments here, such as that there was a pledge that around 50 companies signed up for to, to cut their emissions. So they agreed to um, go towards net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 and to cut their methane emissions um, by 2030. But the problem with that is those are only focused on operational emissions from their, so from the production processes themselves. But those make up less than 10% of these companies' total emissions. They're really like 
the tip of the iceberg, um, the main emissions from these companies is from the fossil fuels themselves, and they haven't made any commitments to cut those. So that's why it's so important that governments here agree to a fossil fuel phase out. Um, and yeah, I really hope that the presence of so many fossil fuel lobbyists doesn't um, hamper that. And as the COP negotiations are progressing, all eyes are turned on whether and how the countries can get closer to meeting the goals set in the Paris Agreement. I'm part of a collaboration of three organizations that tracks climate action. Um, it's called the Climate Action Tracker. And every year we publish uh, temperature assessments of where we're heading under current policies and targets. And unfortunately, our um, we, we actually released our latest update and we've actually got no change since um, last year, essentially. So under current policies, we're heading for around 2.7 degrees of warming, which of course is a really rather terrifying level of warming. Um, there has been progress, though, since Paris. So in, in 2015, when we did the same assessment, we were heading for well over three degrees. So there has been a reduction. We have seen um, governments put in place policies and targets to cut their emissions. So that's, of course, really important momentum. But this gap remains and, and we need governments to come forward with stronger targets for um, this decade and to enact the policies uh, needed to meet them. Um, and what's also critical is that they um, ensure that finance flows are aligned with this goal of, of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. We have not done enough. We have not done enough. And uh, if you would look uh, at evidence that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, has put together in its sixth assessment report, which was released last year, um, it clearly says that if we have to meet the goal of temperature increase uh, of only 1.5 degrees, uh, then the emissions from all countries have to reduce by 42% by 2030 and 60% by 2035. So this is what the scientists are telling us. And the recently released uh, uh, emissions gap report from UNEP tells us that actually emissions have increased between 2021 and 2022 by 1.2%. And if we look at the current pledges uh, by different countries uh, related to the Paris Agreement, we're actually you know, moving towards a world um, uh, which would be, uh, in which the temperatures would be 2.5 to 2.9 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, which is not meeting the goal of the Paris Agreement, which, which was, you know, uh, making all efforts to keep the global temperature increase well below 2 degrees centigrade. So, uh, what what I can say is we are not doing enough. And in that context, I think the global stock take and its relevance and preeminence comes into play on how countries need to now uh, buckle up and enhance their ambition, uh, which is much beyond uh, what they have already put on the table. And this is a critical moment uh, through the global stock take to send that signal uh, to all countries that... Uh, we are actually heading for disaster if, if the ambition is not increased at this current juncture. The EU has been on the forefront of the negotiations to meet the climate targets for 2030 and 2050. But how is the bloc negotiating during these talks in Dubai?
So the EU um, negotiates as a block collectively. Generally speaking, the EU tends to be a pretty progressive um, negotiating block on, especially on cutting emissions. They're, they're kind of generally push for strong action to cut emissions, to follow what the science says is necessary. Um, the EU was very came out very early on vocally in favour of a, a target to triple renewable capacity. On that front, the EU has been, um, yeah, I, I would say, um, somewhat of a leader in climate action. It also did, um, it supported the operationalization of this fund for loss and damage. So this is a fund to help countries deal with climate change impacts that they can't adapt to. And EU countries collectively have so far given $200 million to that fund. But that is more than other some other countries have given, but it's it's still really kind of scratching the surface on what, what is needed for loss and damage financing. It's, it should be more in the billions, not in the millions. The role of EU, like any other party or any other constituency uh, in the COP, is to negotiate in good faith. Negotiate in good faith for ensuring climate action is ambitious, it is fair and equitable. While some developed countries, you know, have opted in or opted out of the Kyoto Protocol or the Paris Agreement. Uh, but EU has been steadfast in its commitment uh, to climate action. And although the messaging that is coming from the COP isn't particularly positive, for Claire Fison, there is a lot of room for better agreements and hopeful actions. There's a lot of a kind of negative messaging coming out of this COP in the media at the moment. And I find it quite worrying to see that, you know, there's there's all this influence of the fossil fuel industry, the COP president himself being so linked to the industry. And I, I guess I would I would say that we need to really hold them accountable and have really high expectations that they deliver here because we, we are running out of time. But there there is a lot of hope still. Um, there's a lot going on outside of the negotiations here. There's a lot of um, people talking about the growing momentum. There's lots of events in the sidelines of industry moving, of civil society moving, and of, 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 of governments moving as well. Like, I guess this process, you know, you've got all countries in the room, so that that gives you the baseline, but then there are actors that are moving faster. For Priti Bandari, the time for action is now, and political manoeuvring shouldn't exist while setting new goals for climate. The vulnerable countries should be in the center of the negotiations. I think the time for action is now and the pace uh, that we will set for climate action and uh, climate plans of uh, various countries emanating from this COP would be very pivotal in the coming years. The time is passed for political maneuvering, uh, especially from the perspective of vulnerable countries who are on the brink of existential crisis. And they don't have the time for these political maneuverings and games. So, so again, I come back to to that, uh, you know, theme of uh, of building trust, of uh, having integrity in while committing to to ambitious clim- climate outcomes, bearing in mind the plight and situation of the vulnerable people and the vulnerable countries. Thank you. I am Evie Kiori and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv to stay on top of the latest news, sign up to our podcast newsletter and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever it is that you're listening to your podcast. Thank you for tuning in and until next time. As part of our commitment to accuracy, inclusion and transparency, Euractiv is part of the Trust Project.